Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. I want to invite all of you in the Building the Future community to join me at SUPEX, the Startup Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, this July 26th, where I'll be the MC. SUPEX is one of the largest and best startup conferences in the U.S. and the official gathering of the Building the Future community this summer. SUPEX has cutting-edge content, a cool startup competition, and a half-day forum this year called Hashtag Women for Women, the largest gathering in the U.S. in 2018 of angel groups, seed funds, and BC funds focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. For more information, visit www.sup-x.org. I hope to see all my Building the Future friends there. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Ken Aldrich. He's a serial entrepreneur and seed stage investor. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to actually have you on the show. You've done a ton of stuff and um, you've been invested in, you know, a crazy amount of companies. Uh, you know, you're doing some really cool stuff with, with Dream Toolbox, but maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Oklahoma City, okay. uh, deep in the Midwest or South Midwest, um, then went from there to the East Coast and uh, attended college at, at Harvard University, took a year out ostensibly to do graduate work in New York, but in all honesty, it was pretty much a goof-off year, and then went back to <laughs> sure. Harvard. And, well, you know, that's the way it is when you're that age. Sure. Um, went back to Harvard and, and got a law degree from Harvard uh, many years ago. Well, Mastodon still roamed and ice covered the earth. <laughs> so what made you want to go into law? Well, the truth of the matter is it was somewhat of a default option. I okay. had been groomed from early childhood to be a Presbyterian preacher uh, Interesting. and realized that in, in the middle of school and in graduate school that that really was not my calling and I had no business inflicting my uh, lack of uh, faith in the traditional sense on my parishioners. Uh, so I said, what, what else can I do that I can make a living that I might enjoy? And I'd had friends as a child who were lawyers, and uh, I had previously taken the bar exam for reasons that I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, so I'd been, uh, I'd been pre-admitted to Harvard, and that just seemed like a logical uh, next step. And I must say, I completely enjoyed the law school process. Uh, didn't enjoy practicing law that much when I got out, which led to my other careers. But sure. uh, uh, law school itself was a great intellectual challenge, and uh, I've never regretted that I did it. Interesting. Yeah, and, and having understanding the law is, is never a bad thing, kind of, no matter where you go in life, right? No, ab absolutely not. It's, it helps in a whole variety of subtle ways, and uh, uh, I didn't really realize it was complaining one day many years ago, and um, 
the woman who I was married to, who is since uh, deceased, said, Ken, you have no idea how many times you use what you learned in law school. So stop complaining about it. And I did. Interesting. So you, you got out of Harvard, you practiced law for a few years. How long did you actually work in law before you kind of moved on? I worked about five years altogether, a year okay. in Dallas and four years in, in Los Angeles. And I knew that I really wanted to get on the other side of the table a little sooner than that, but I didn't want to leave practice until I was pretty sure that I had done enough work to be a competent lawyer uh, if I ever wanted to go back to it and also leaving before I felt comfortable with my skills felt a little bit like quitting and I didn't want to be a quitter. So I stayed on for about four years, four to five years, and uh, then started looking for a way to get on the business side of the table. Interesting. So walk us through kind of your career because you've done a ton of stuff, maybe some career highlights kind of along the way, up until kind of what you're doing currently. Okay, uh, I'll try to make a, a somewhat lengthy task or journey quicker. Sure. Um, I, after I left law practice, I went briefly into the investment banking business. This okay. was in the pre-Michael Milken era. Interesting. Uh, and uh, was working with a, a regional brokerage firm in the West Coast uh, doing real estate transactions and helping real estate companies get financed, um, which I enjoyed. Uh, but the company I was working for did a, uh, a shotgun marriage in a bad period in the market to a New York firm, and they wanted me to come to New York. And I said, you know, been there, done that, and it snows in New York. <laughs> so <I laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> Staying in California um, and was lucky enough to have a client, which was in the real estate business, um, hire me as their chief financial and chief legal officer. So I did that. It was one of the early stage real estate investment trusts, which were basically trusts designed to make short-term construction loans. Uh, unfortunately, they uh, made some mistakes and borrowed longer than their loans and got caught in the uh, squeeze of interest rates in the 70s. So that whole you. industry temporarily disappeared and uh, my job disappeared with it. But I looked at the world and I said, you know, I don't think I can do any worse job in the real estate business than all these companies that have gone broke. Why don't I try it on my own? Interesting. So I did. I started buying and selling initially uh, beach houses in Malibu back when beach houses were actually affordable. <laughs> um, I would buy them and move into them and clean them up and resell them and move again. I think I moved seven times in one year, Wow! but that got me enough of a grub stake to start buying more permanent properties. So I spent from about the early 70s, mid-70s until after the 86 uh, S&L crisis uh, in real estate, uh, doing real estate deals, did everything from buying and selling apartment houses to uh, building with two friends a 30-story high-rise office building, wow. uh, which was a bit of hubris on our part because none of us had ever done anything like that. Okay. In fact, uh, only one partner had any construction experience, but we got a good piece of land and we thought, well, let's, let's do it. Uh, and so we did. And uh, it was a different age then because at that time you could get incredible financing as an independent entrepreneur. And I recall we built a hundred thousand, a hundred 
uh, million dollar office building, wow. and the most money any of us ever had actually invested in it was a hundred thousand dollars. Oh wow! Um, the collapse of the SNL industry in about 1986 put an end to that game, <laughs> and I started looking around and saying, okay, where else could I get high leverage on my limited assets? Uh, so that I don't have to go out and join a big company or try to create an investment fund? And the answer was um, early stage venture capital, for me at least. Interesting. So I took, I had some money and I had a few investors who were willing to stick with me and uh, started investing in very early stage companies um, and frankly paid my dues pretty expensively in the first year or two uh, because uh, it was a different business. and. Uh, like a lot of people who've been successful in one business, I thought I knew everything until uh, I started getting stock certificates that were only worth the wallpaper on the wall. So <laughs> I have I have a stack of them that someday I intend to paper the bathroom with my mistake. <laughs> so it was it was a good learning curve, but so that got me into that business, and I gradually learned. Uh, how to do it so that I wasn't losing money. Uh, you always have losses in the venture business, but sure. the trick is to cut the losses early and, and ride with the profits. And it, it's been a very good business for me, very kind to me for many years. But along the way, I ended up starting some companies, um, mostly in the biotech and medical device area, because I had some friends who had skills there, and they asked for my business advice, and we ended up creating companies. So we created a public biotech company, which is, is uh, still out there, although I've long since departed from it, uh, created a, a medical device company that enabled surgeons to do cataract surgery and get almost perfect vision when they were done. Wow. That we sold to a large optical company for a few hundred million, so that kind of helped, helped the bank roll a little bit, although I'd been heavily diluted by several rounds of venture financing. So it wouldn't have made me rich all by itself, but it certainly was a lot of fun. And then I've done a number. I think I figured out the other day I've done 10 companies where I was a, a founder, okay. uh, and one of those failed. Uh, the other 10 did not. We either were able to sell them at a small profit or, in a couple of cases, uh, a fairly substantial profit. So my batting average when I do it myself is has been pretty good. My average when I invest in other people's companies, um, as you would expect, is not as good, but it's still been uh, uh, a very, very good business for me, and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I've probably invested in about 50 companies, wow. many of which did not make it, but some of them did extraordinarily well, and uh, I think my best return was about uh, 100 to 1 on my money. So wow. uh, once in a while, you get uh, you get something very special. Sure. So... Walk me through kind of what you're up to today because you're involved still in a ton of stuff and maybe, and then let's kind of get into uh, Dream Toolbox. Okay, well, let me talk about the business side first. Sure. I still act as a, as a mentor and advisor and an investor in a variety of companies and also through the network that I built over 20 or more years in the industry. Uh, I get invited to invest in companies fairly frequently. So I can imagine. I try to do that. Pardon me? I can imagine that you get offered all the time to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do. I, I deliberately do not have a web page or list my name anywhere because I have, uh, then you get too many 
too many requests from people you've never heard of. Sure. But um, so I still do a fair amount of investing. Most of it is in biotech and medical devices. Um, and then I act as an advisor to various other people. So that's an active um, retirement business, if you will. I, I tell my friends that I've flunked retirement at least three times and, <laughs> and am still flunking. So I'm a, I'm a retirement dropout. <laughs> I uh, love that. That's awesome. Um, are, are you, you're I, still in Malibu, I, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. So, so you still have that ocean view? Still have an ocean oh. view. I moved back off of the beach some years ago. Okay. Uh, the uh, the crashing surf is lovely, but uh, you eventually you get tired of all your clothes being slightly mildewed. So, uh, gotcha. moved about a hundred yards away from the beach, and it's a little better that way. All right. So, so you're not, still kind of enjoying time. retirement, right? Like, <laughs> or oh. non-retirement. <laughs> well, I've been living at the beach for the last almost 50 years yeah so that's amazing that part's not new but uh, i i do love it i get i tell my friends that i get the bends if i get more than 100 yards from the water <laughs> so okay so you, you're still kind of active in in businesses um you're mentoring people you're doing all this stuff um how involved are you still kind of in uh you know venture capital and some of the other medical companies that you're kind of uh working with well, I, I'm involved in varying degrees. Uh, for the most part in the medical companies, I act as a, an informal consultant to a okay. couple of firms that, that do investment banking in the field, and I have invested in, I guess at this point, seven or eight uh, different medical device companies and, and some unrelated fields through a couple of uh, boutique investment banking firms that I'm very fond of that do a lovely job. So I do that. Um, and then uh, I'm also involved as an investor, but also actively in contact with and, and consult to the senior executives in two or three smaller biotech companies. I'm particularly interested in, in, in cancer research and in optical devices, but I, uh, I, don't, I, I try not to limit myself too much. Um, I, have enough, I have a broad enough knowledge about the industry to not get in too much trouble, but at the same time, uh, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I, when I work with young people, I say, look, the most important thing that you can ever have in business is a command of the English language, assuming that you're in the United States or England okay. or Australia, uh, New Zealand, I suppose, but, uh, and the ability to influence and interpret uh, to other people uh, the things that you need to know. So, uh, but I said you don't necessarily have to have all this technical education. I never had high school um, math passed about geometry. I never had chemistry or physics at all, as best I can recall, and didn't even study accounting until I was in law school for a year. And yet, I've started uh, ten companies and invested successfully in, um, you know, in fifty or more. Um, because I, what I did have was the ability to absorb what the scientists were trying to teach me well enough that I could in turn translate that to Wall Street and not embarrass or humiliate myself or the company. And that proved to be a, a very valuable skill because many, many technical people, particularly in science and, and in the electronic technologies, have a hard time explaining what they do to non-techies, 
And Interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I found I had a skill in that and uh, built a business around it. That's actually really interesting. I, I think that is key. That like bridging that gap between those two types of people is actually not a lot of people can can do that. At least in my experience, have you kind of found the same thing? Yeah, I have. Um, it's uh, I used to when I was running a public biotech company. Of course, we always had to go and make speeches at investment conferences, and it was very interesting for me because you would see the CEOs of of very successful companies, and many of them much bigger and more successful than mine, but they would get up to talk to the Wall Street analysts, and uh, they had charts, they had technical thises and thats, they talked at great length in uh, uh, chemistry symbols, uh, which almost no one in their audience understood, and then they wondered why they had trouble getting the stock to, to grow in value. So uh, I have great respect for those people because they do things I can't do. Sure. But at the same time, the ability to communicate and which, frankly, anybody can learn. Uh, people don't, uh, and they don't pay enough attention to it. But it, it's it's a learned art. Uh, I guess I'm lucky that most people don't do it, or I'd I'd have a harder time making a living. Interesting. So how did, well how did you go about kind of learning that like what or do you, or is that kind of uh, top secret now <laughs> No 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 secret to it at all I always was a, a comfortable as a public speaker and all I did debating in high school and public speaking in college and then I when I was still studying for the ministry I I was a circuit rider preacher in the summer okay. filling in for preachers uh, who were on vacation so uh, speaking publicly was always something I was very comfortable with. Um, what I discovered was that once I got into the venture world, very, very smart scientists and other people who were trying to get a company off the ground were willing to spend an inordinate amount of time educating me with what I had to know in order to represent them to investors, whether it was on Wall Street or, or private investors, including myself. And, um, and I found that I, you know, if I listened, I could learn quite a lot. So I ended up with a, a speaking knowledge, at least, of, of a fairly broad array of different biotechnology areas and, uh, and also uh, now understand uh, quite a bit about the human eye and some other things. I, I, I remember vividly and with some shame when I was working in my optical company, the first time I went to an optical convention, and you walk down these aisles, and on either side of you, there are people with demonstration booths uh, showing how this or that scalpel will work to, to cut properly in the eye, and they use pig's eyes usually. And I walked down with my hands on both sides of my head because I couldn't bear to look. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Eventually, I got comfortable enough I could go into the OR and... and uh, observe what was being done with the devices we created but that was a that was quite a learning experience to get used to watching surgeons work yeah i can i can oh, imagine I, that that stuff uh would, i i don't think i could look to be honest <laughs> I, I would not have made it through medical school let's put it that way <laughs> yeah fair enough so i, I want to transition a little bit into you created this thing called dreamtoolbox.com and i i think you've put together some really good content 
but what exactly is it and why did you decide to kind of put this stuff out there? Well, let me start with the why, because okay. that explains kind of everything. I've been edu- ed- interested in education forever and uh, have been, in- been involved on the advisory board for the Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, Dean's Advisory Board for, I guess, a decade or so now, something wow. like that. Um, and I started volunteering in inner city schools, um, again, probably about a decade ago, uh, and I noticed something over time, which was that if we had a class of, let's say, 30 students, and we were trying to, I and other mentors, were trying to teach these young people some principles of basic financial literacy plus some entrepreneurial principles. Okay. Maybe in the course of a semester, one or two, if we were lucky out of the class of 30, would really get it, and you would see a light bulb go off in their, behind their eyes, and you knew you'd done something good. Interesting. But I was frustrated by those numbers, because uh, we did everything we could to reach the other 28, uh, and maybe something we said or did will bear fruit five years, ten years down the road, but the reality is we weren't making much of an impact on more than about one or two percent of the of the students. So I said, what if we could reach students on a broader scale through the internet, through public speaking, whatever format, but I settled on the internet to start. Sure. Um, because the other thing that I had observed in talking with the students and in volunteering and speaking in other similar groups was that often it wasn't a matter of the cumulative effect of my being there every week. I mean, don't get me wrong, showing up matters when you're working with underprivileged kids or maybe with anybody. Uh, Because if you don't show up, that's a pretty good sign that you're not really committed. But at the same time, I often would be a guest speaker, a panelist, and would talk for 10 minutes. And out of that brief encounter, some student would come up to me later and say, wow, you said something that really began to change my life. And I ended up helping some young students get funding for a startup company they wanted and and a whole variety of things that have been wonderful. So I said, well, maybe it isn't totally the time length. Maybe if I can go in out to the world and talk about the aspirational or inspirational parts of entrepreneurism and and finance that may be the most valuable thing I could possibly do interesting uh, if, if you have a young person or any person who says look I want to start my own business or I just want to understand better the business that I work for there are tons of books and lectures and tapes out there on the nuts and bolts of doing that how to write a business plan how to do a PowerPoint presentation etc. What there aren't out there in any quantity that I know of are things that help someone who is not otherwise financially aware, particularly young people, know what the possibilities are. Know that, no kidding, you don't have to be a Rockefeller to raise money. That, yes, you can indeed start a business. Yes, you can quit your job as I did and go off and, and do something else. They don't know it, and when they do realize it, 
It's as if somebody opened the shutters on a window and they saw a beautiful sunlit day in a meadow beyond. And that's exciting. So I thought, well, maybe we can get some of that effect. We'll never know who they are, probably, but maybe we can get some of that effect if instead of reaching 30 people a year, I can reach 30 or 40,000. We have now 40 or 50,000 uh, uh, followers on our Facebook page. So we're, we're slowly making progress. I wish it were faster, but, you know, patience is a, a virtue in this as well, I hope. But so that was the thought, that if we can get those kinds of recognition points to the possibilities that everybody has within them, and some basic tools such as how you do visualization, how do you set goals, um, how do you motivate yourself, a whole array of things. If we could do that, some of those truths will resonate with some of the people who are listening. So that's what we set out to do, and the plan was to have um, 10 or 15. We now actually are at 22, and I've written another 20 chapters that I haven't put online yet. But wow. um, we... But to do it in little three to four minute audio clips uh, so that someone coming to it, we know that attention spans are ridiculously short in this day and age, (laughs) both among the young as well as us older people. And so if we could get some basic concepts so that you could, it'd be the equivalent of reading two pages and get a new idea that might come, cause you to come back or might change the vector of how you think about things that was the goal and uh, we're still working on it still figuring out what works and doesn't work but it's become a real venture of love for me and uh, I'm hoping that uh, somewhere down the line I will help change some lives well whether I know it or not well I I think you already are I I think the thing that's interesting about anything that you kind of put online for free that people can just kind of get access to. I at least remember some of the early courses that I took that, you know, somebody taught me this skill set, and I always credit them when I'm talking to other people. It's like, oh yeah, this guy or girl taught me, you know, this back in the day, and it was an online course that I just literally watched their videos, right? And I never reached out to them. They have no idea that they taught me and probably thousands of other people, but I'll always remember. So I I think, I think people that you've taught in the past, you may never actually hear from those people, but they are out there and they kind of will always remember that. Right. And that, that's kind of always an interesting thing to me, but I want to dive a bit deeper into um, some of the content that you guys cover in dream toolbox. But before that, I, I really want to stress something that's on your bio. You have these three critical things that kind of have become apparent to you over your, your kind of career. Do you maybe want to kind of cover those? Because I think they're probably some of the most important things to tell people from somebody like yourself that's kind of been there, done that, had huge successes. You also mentioned you've had kind of some failures as well. Well, I'm happy to do it. I, I must say I'm not quite sure which three things you had in mind, so you may sure. have to prompt me. That's fine. Um, okay, so you, the first one you have is success has little to do with race, gender, or where the founder started on the economic ladder. 
I absolutely believe that, and and I've seen it play out in in so many ways. Uh, one of the things that I find very sad in in today's world is the extent to which uh, people, particularly if they are in a minority uh, ethnic group, and and also uh, women who are really not in a minority but are treated in many ways as if they were. Sure look upon that as a, a barrier that they can't overcome. A dear friend of mine wrote a book that is a lovely book, but the title just captivated me years ago. She was a very successful business executive and wrote a book called Dancing on the Glass Ceiling. Interesting. Which I thought was just wonderful. That's brilliant, yeah. Because it's, it's a great book, and uh, I, I recommend it if somebody wants to look it up. I'm sure it's still on Amazon, although it's 20 or 30 years old. It's still relevant. But I see, I see so many people who have taken their disadvantages and turned them into advantages. One, one of the earliest examples was a fellow that was the president of a company that I uh, helped finance, uh, and he was a young black man. Uh, highly articulate. He'd spent real time and effort developing language skills, but we we were traveling to raise money for the company. And I noticed a couple of things. One, he was always impeccably dressed, and he carried uh, a little travel iron with him so that he could, if we were rumpled at the end of the day, he could press his suits and always was just impeccable. Interesting. And I asked him, I said, you know, why do you do that? And he said, well, uh, it's pretty simple. He said, uh, I'm, I'm a minority. Uh, I'm trying to get people who are not of my race, for the most part, to put money in my company. And he said, it costs me so little to put on the very best face that I can. Why should I not do that? Interesting. And he said, as I've done it over the years, I've realized that it actually has given me an advantage because um, people almost bend over backward to kind of give me an extra break because they realize that I'm respecting their culture and I'm respecting who they are and what I'm doing with them. I had another friend who was a mentor of mine who was not a minority, but he taught me something very interesting. We, uh, We were doing some fairly aggressive things in the real estate business early on. And my friend would always show up at the meetings. And this was back in the 60s and 70s when, uh, you know, their the flared pants and bright colors were kind of the norm even in business suits. Sure. And he always showed up in the meeting in what I called a banker's suit. It was, okay. you know, charcoal gray or blue, looked very, very fresh. And I said, why, why do you do that? Uh, you know, it's, it's, 60s or 70s, wherever we were, and he said, very simple, he said, I'm trying to persuade people to do things with me that they may think are outrageous. Why should I make it harder for them to say yes by dressing in a way that might cause them some concern? So, again, it's the same kind of principle. I think the history of of minorities and people who start out at the bottom of the economic ladder, as this fellow did. He, his father had gone bankrupt on more than one occasion, but he rose and today is a very wealthy man. Wow. Um, uh, 
if you begin to think of those things as uh, poverty or race or whatever as mountains you can't climb then or great chasms that you can't leap uh, then you doom yourself I mean the the president of American Express uh, was a was a black man okay. I don't think most blacks know that um, but he's that you know you couldn't imagine a more sort of mainstream company than American Express, and yet it had a black president. People don't know it. Interesting. And often we don't realize what the opportunities really are because people get caught up in what they see as their disadvantages and don't realize that as you overcome those, yes, you may have to, if you're a woman or you're a minority race, you may have to work harder than somebody else, but along the way, that's going to get rewarded. Um, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if I'm hiring people and I have three applicants and and two of them are, you know, white males and the third is some minority and they all look equally good on paper, I'm likely to hire the minority because I figure that he or she had to work harder and be smarter to get where they are than the other two. And so it becomes almost a reverse prejudice that I don't have any I don't have any shame about employing from time to time. No, that that's interesting. The the second thing that you mention is well I'll I'll put it in kind of point form because it's kind of long, but it's academic degrees don't matter much, um, but kind of a broad base of intellectual curiosity matters a lot. Uh it's it's Absolutely true, and I think is more true in many ways than today than it was in the past. Now, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that as a starting point, if you have an advanced degree, uh, particularly if it's in a field that where there is demand, uh, engineering, any sure. of the so-called STEM uh, disciplines, uh, it will help you get into that first job. And there is no question that there are some jobs and some companies in which you cannot advance beyond a certain point without a particular academic degree. To be honest with you, I don't want to work for those people because they're looking at a piece of paper instead of what I can do. Interesting. But that's, that's my prejudice. Um, but the reality is, um, assuming you have the degree uh, or don't, once you've been out in the workforce, whether as an entrepreneur or within a company, for a few years, it really doesn't matter. Uh, it's what you can do, and and how you go about it. One of one of the partners that I had early in my life had, I think, at best a high school diploma. Um, his grammar wasn't perfect; that was a negative for him, and it hurt him from time to time. Sure. But nevertheless, he had great confidence in his own ability. He exuded that confidence. People trusted him, and he was by far the most effective fundraiser of, of any of the group of partners that I was working with at that point because he totally believed in himself. So, uh, and the degree didn't matter. In my own case, I had a degree from a very prestigious university. Sure. Um, after three or four years, I won't say that it didn't help. Maybe some people gave me a little bit of credit beyond what I deserved, but the reality is it was what I was doing. And I, I met from time to time over the years, people who graduated with me, and they were still 
mentally kind of living on their on their diploma. Interesting. And and they were sad about it. They weren't. They didn't know that's why they were sad. But it was it was not pleasant to see because they'd lost their curiosity. They'd stopped learning. They'd stopped reading books in fields they didn't know something about before they started reading. And uh, I just thought, you know, that's that's such a pity because their lives have become constricted by their own looking backward instead of looking forward. Sure. No, I, I think that's great. And the final one that I that I totally believe in, too, is um, a passion and desire to kind of create something new and valuable to the world is kind of almost essential. Well, I think that's right, because if you look at successful, particularly successful entrepreneurs, or for that matter, other people have been successful, yes, they all at some level probably wanted to make a lot of money, and they have, but I've met almost no successful people at the higher levels who didn't have a passion to do something that nobody else has done before, or to do something better than anybody else is doing it. And that usually really drives the success spectrum. Interesting. Uh, 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 I had a long conversation not long ago at a board meeting with a fellow who founded one of the companies that I invested in that became extraordinarily successful. And uh, he is certainly enjoying his wealth, but what's really so clear whenever we talk is his passion for serving the people happens to be his primary market uh, target group, if you will, is people of of lower income and produces a very, very useful product that fits that demographic. Uh, And he is so passionate about making everything that he does and that his company does fit in that, within that goal of making life better for his customers. Uh, and I think it's true almost across the board. I, can, I can't think of an executive who in one way or another didn't have that goal. I mean, Steve Jobs uh, supposedly was not the easiest guy in the world to work for, sure. but he had a passion for making the most attractive, user-friendly product in his field that anybody could. And, and the result, I think, is... Uh, largely due to that vision, which has been carried on by others, but it's Apple Computer, which, it, as I'm speaking with you now, I think is the largest company in the world in terms of yeah. market cap. Totally. Or one of the, certainly one of the top five. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with that when they're one of the most popular companies kind of ever, right? Um, very cool. So I want to transition kind of back into some of the content that you cover in the Dream Toolbox one of the things that kind of really resonated with me that I want your kind of thoughts on and kind of why you believe in this is something called active dreaming. What is it and why is it so important for people? It's in many ways the most important thing there is. Okay. And I can get at it best by, uh, by telling you a story. It's, it's not a new concept. Uh, it helped shape my career many, many years ago when I was really frustrated and struggling and trying to get started. And I read a book, I 
can't remember the author or the title, and it was about you know how to how to become a millionaire, one of those things. Sure. But in the early chapter, he wrote about shifting your subconscious mindset by imagining in as much vivid detail as you possibly can what your life would be like as if it already were like that if you succeeded in reaching your goals. And his example, which I've used, was, you know, if your goal is something, frankly, fairly simple these days, but let's say your goal was you wanted a brand-new Cadillac. This was okay. goes back to the 70s when that was the car to, to be had. And he said, you need to feel what it's like to sit in it, to smell the leather, to feel the, the soft, buttery leather of the fabric, to, to put your hands on the steering wheel, just as if you had all of those sensations that you first get when you get into a new car, and then imagine what it would be like to be doing that every day. So that was a starting point. But then you get into the, the second part, which was you do it and you do take your own life. How would people react to you if you were already, not in the future, but already successful? And then literally practice that every day, whether it's with your eyes shut, sitting on the bed before you get up, standing in front of the mirror, whatever. Take five minutes and envision your yourself as the success you want to be as if it has already occurred and i'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or the neurobiologist so i can't explain why it works but it does something in the subconscious part of your brain that causes decisions that are made in the rest of the day and the rest of your life to be somehow subconsciously focused on the basic question of will this decision move me toward my dream or away from my dream and uh, it is it's the closest thing to magic I know in, in the world of entrepreneurship sure so just uh, skipping around the content a little bit because you have tons of these kind of episodes and people can go listen to all of them but I think it's kind of a good transition though it's it's great to kind of have these dreams but I find, and I would put myself in this boat in the past and currently, and, and maybe it's kind of a lifelong thing that people struggle with, like how do you convert actually some of those dreams that we just talked about into actual kind of goals to make happen for yourself? Well, there are a couple things. The first one is really simple. It's two words. Just start. Okay. I know more people whose dreams are lying on the shelf and they get dusted off periodically, but they've never just taken that first step. So that's, sure. that's kind of an oversimplistic answer to that question. The other is to define the dreams in concrete terms. And one of the drills that I talk about in, in Dream Toolbox that I think is also extremely helpful is to sit down for five minutes with a blank piece of paper. Okay. And I try to do this periodically. And write down what would I most like to do and, and make a list. It's not just one thing. Write down everything you can think of very quickly. What would I do if I knew that I could not fail? Okay. And the last part is really important because your mind, the minute you start that list, starts to edit and say, well, I really couldn't do that. So you, you, you want to drop it off the list. People need to leave it in the list 
make the list. Some of it will be silly stuff when you read the list. That's okay. I mean, but if I use the example, if Wilbur Norville Wright had said, oh, man can't fly, I'll leave that off my list. Sure. Uh, we'd be living in a different world today. Yeah. Uh, or somebody else would have invented the airplane, one or the other. Right. But uh, that's enormously important. Then when you have the list, you can weed the list and say, okay, what are the one or two, preferably one in, at a time, goals that I want to set and, and make as my target? Once you do that, then you can begin to set what I call waypoints. It comes from my days in sail, racing sailboats. Sure. You, in a sailboat, you can't go in a straight line from A to B because the wind won't let you. So you set, up, set out points at which you're going to turn to go back on another tack in a different direction uh, or a point to go out around a promontory of land that you can't sail through, obviously. And so those are intermediate goals. I call them waypoints. Others can call them different things. But that's one of the ways to get going is when the goal is clear, the dream is clear, and you've said, yeah, I'm going to treat this as if it's possible, even though it seems really, really difficult. Then you start saying, okay, what's my first step? What is the first goal that I need to get to? And you begin to plot those specific target goals. So you're always looking at the bright, shining light in the future, but you're also looking at the place, the, the ways you have to go to get there. And those will change with time. Sure. Uh, most businesses do you know what we now call and I hate the word but it's called a pivot where sure. you realize you know this was not quite the best way to get there let's change course let's change the product let's change the marketing whatever you do but the goal is always in the future and that is really critical stuff and most of us have a very hard time doing it we sure. get sidetracked uh, or we get to the first goal and forget that we need to shift and go to the next goal Sure. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's my answer to that one. No, I, I think that's great, man. I think this ties into, you also have an episode on kind of the myth of someday. What, how do you kind of get people kind of over that hurdle as well? Well, it's, it's largely the same process. And that really does go back to the, my first comment about just start because you can build the dreams, you can do the visualization. The visualization helps you get over the myth of someday a bit. The myth of someday, for those who don't know what we're talking about, is we all have a tendency to say, someday I'll be rich and famous. Someday I'll build that building. Someday I'll do whatever your someday is. But we don't begin. Sure. We don't say, yes, someday I will, and by the way, I'm starting right now, and right now I'm going to visualize what it's going to be like in that someday so that I get that implanted in my subconscious and do all of those things that we've just discussed. Because, um, and the other part of it is, we are trained, most of us, as in school, to say, well, when I get my diploma, when I get my first job and some experience, when I do this, when I do that, then I'll be ready to go forward. And in working with the young people, I say, look, you can begin right now with whatever it is. There's a story that's, that's in Dream Toolbox. I was a guest speaker at a, at a conference of about 75 
mostly underprivileged kids. Okay. And the promoter of the conference had challenged the kids to raise money for not their tuition, because that was a scholarship, but for the tuition for the next kids. And the goal was to raise $7,000. Okay. And she said, you know, you're not begging for money. You're talking to people about investing in the future of the country they love. So she'd given that lecture to these kids a couple of weeks before, and we came in and we were talking with the kids. And one young girl, about 15 years old, from a, a, a relatively poor Hispanic family, said, well, I've raised $14,000 in the last two weeks. Wow. And everybody's mouth dropped. But what she had done was she just took it seriously and said, okay, I'm going to begin. And so she went to every church, every uh, uh, civic group, everything she could think of and said, you know, I'm asking you for financial support, not for myself, but for others like me because we are the future and this is your way of investing in the future. And she got the money. Um, wow. But she had to start. She had sure. to go out and do it. She had to put her fears of rejection aside because I'm sure she got some no's. Oh, for sure. Uh, but it's it's a very intangible sort of thing, but invaluable. Sure. The um, we're and kind. Postpone it. That's the myth of someday. No, that, I think that's really great advice. So we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but I really want to cover a couple more things that you you cover in in uh, Dream Toolbox. Um, you have an episode kind of on money, and then the following episode is kind of on freedom and happiness. What do you kind of talk about there? Are they kind of related in your experience? Because you've obviously done really well for yourself, and I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on those uh, kind of three topics. Oh, I'm glad you asked that, because they're really important. Um, first of all, you know, you always hear money can't buy happiness, sure, and it can't, but it makes it a lot easier. So sure. let's face that. Uh, and then you hear the other thing, you know, money is the root of all evil. Yep. Well, first of all, the quote's wrong. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Interesting. And that's probably true because money is just a tool. Okay, it's interesting. never more than a tool. Uh, you use it to buy postage stamps. You use it to start a business. You use it to pay for a car or a house. Right. It's nothing in the world but a tool. And once people stop dreaming of money in some abstract sense and say, oh, I want to be rich, I want to have a million dollars in the bank, or whatever it is, and begin to think about it as, okay, I want to, take my example, we wanted to build an office building. Okay. Uh, we had okay. the land found. We needed $50 million to build it. It became a $100 million building when it was done, but we needed $50 million to build it. We didn't have it, but... We knew that money was a tool, and so we just set about to figure out how to get access to that tool. And we talked to people, we talked to investors, we explained to them how they might make more money by investing with us, all of those things that you do if you're an entrepreneur. But we didn't articulate it this way, but the reality is we were using money as a tool, a way to make something happen. The something that we wanted to happen was a beautiful high-rise office building. Sure. Uh, and I think the minute we begin to realize that, then we are no longer in awe of people who have money. They have a tool we'd like to 
persuade them to use for our benefit. Interesting. That's great. It's a tool. It's no longer a scary thing. They're no different than we are. They are richer, and they have more tools. So that changes all of the thought process once you go down that road, I think. Um, happiness, um, I think what makes happiness really is, is two things. One, deciding to be happy. Interesting. I mean, if you act as if you're happy, even when you're not necessarily happy, by golly, the endorphins in your body do kick in and, and you end up being happier. So that's kind of, you know, pop psychology 101, but I think it's true. The other is that I think real happiness comes from learning to do things that give you a feeling of accomplishment and setting out to do them, doing them, saying, you know, I did that. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. Uh, and that, I think, is what is the ground of real happiness. Uh, one of my pet peeves are the, are the things where they try to give out trophies to every student on the losing team. The students know those aren't earned. Sure. Uh, and I think the real happiness comes from saying, you know, I really did the very best I could. Maybe I won, maybe I didn't win, but I know that I did everything I could with the ability I had. That will produce happiness. Money's just a tool to help you get there. Interesting, Ken. Sadly, we're out of time, but let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and Dream Toolbox. Uh, the easiest way is to go to the website, which is uh, dreamtoolbox.com. We're also on Facebook uh, under Dream Toolbox, and uh, we're, we're at a variety of other social media sites, but all of the data is really on under the dreamtoolbox.com website, and that will lead you everywhere else that you might want to go to find out about me and Dream Toolbox and, and my career and what I've done. Uh, Perfect, Ken. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, and thank you for having me on your show. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.